0: Um, uh, Good afternoon, thanks very much for coming. Uh, This is a real privilege for us at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, I'm Michael Green. I'm Senior Vice President here for Asia um, and uh, joined by Amy Seawright, the director of our uh, Southeast Asia program, and Andrew Shearer, the three of us uh, together um, uh, run something we call Pacific Partners to focus on Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. we're uh, extremely pleased that in his 24 hour stop in Washington, um, Bill Shorten, the leader of the opposition could, could join us today. Um, he's come off a very uh, good election result um, and he comes to Washington Almost in a tradition that uh, frankly Republicans and Democrats really appreciate, which we don't have with all our allies and that's a bipartisan tradition around our alliance. <laughs> There's, I could count on one hand, and frankly, I might have to remove one or two of these. Uh, the number of allies we can say that about. Um, and uh, I was in the Bush White House. Um, Amy worked in the Obama administration. Um, we had uh, a coalition and labor governments. And the alliance kept doing its thing, um, whether it was defense or diplomacy, managing the global financial crisis, creating the G20, uh, working in the UN. Um, the ideological color may have changed a little from time to time but the the mission and the commitment to getting it done never changes and that is something we are grateful for. I hope that's the feeling uh, in Australia. Um, It's something we try to get some of our allies to study and, and emulate. Um, and so in that spirit, we're delighted to have the, uh, the leader of the opposition here. Um, I think we have a pretty, uh, 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 strong group of, uh, audience members who, who follow and believe in this alliance. So I don't need to do a lengthy, um, introduction, although Henry Kissinger famously, uh, when people stand up and say, no one needs to give Henry Kissinger a lengthy introduction, he always says, no, please do. Um, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a, a Melbourne man and a graduate of Monash. Um, r- rose up through the uh, trade unions in Australia uh, to leadership positions and to the leadership of the opposition. Um, uh, for Americans, this is entirely confusing, but his uh, CV says he barracks for Collingwood in the American Football League, and I had to ask, that does not mean he lives in a uh, building it's, it's with fun, the with team, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> how we would t- it means he's a fan. That's, that's
1: silly funny. <laughs> it means he's
0: a fan. Um, so, uh, Mr. Shorten will uh, give his remarks, um, I'll join him up on the stage for one or two questions. We'll open up and look forward to a a very fruitful dialogue. Thank you very much for joining us on your busy trip. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Mike. Very generous. Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for coming along on a Friday afternoon sure it's just what you want to hear, the views of a visiting opposition leader. <laughs> uh, but it is a pleasure, it's a special pleasure to be here in the United States and, of course, here in Washington, D.C. I was thinking about it as, uh, as I was driving here, that it's been a 100 years, a 100 years ago in the mud of the Western Front, that Australians and Americans actually fought and fell together faces to the foe. Indeed one of the more unusual circumstances in some of the battles where American troops were commanded by an Australian general. But ever since that tragic conflict, again from the north coast of Papua New Guinea and the islands of the Pacific, the biting cold of Korea, in the jungle dark of Vietnam, the mountains and green valleys of Afghanistan and today as we speak in the skies over northern Iraq and Syria in the fight against Daesh. Ours, the bond of America and Australia has been built upon shared sacrifice. A friendship forged in war and tempered by peace. A friendship dedicated to a safer, more free world. And from the very first days, we have found common ground, shared values, an instinctive recognition of a kindred national spirit. Ours is a shared belief, not just in an individual's liberty, but in their right to pursue happiness, The principle that people should be judged by their qualities, rewarded by their hard work, not shackled by the circumstances of their birth. We both believe in a nation where anyone can make it, where there is room for everyone to be their best. Right now, in both our nations, Indeed, in democracies around the world. That idea is being challenged, tested, disputed. Too many of our fellow citizens are abandoning their faith in mainstream politics because they feel it has failed them. Rallying not in the name of a particular ideal, but against the very idea of politics itself. Now, I haven't uh, come to the United States to wade into the presidential contest, but I see these forces at play here, as I do at home around the world. I have made some forthright criticisms of candidate Trump's views in the past. He hasn't tweeted at me yet. (laughs) I do reject slogans of building walls and filling jails. I don't believe that one of the world's great melting pots of humanity should adopt a race-based immigration policy. Or that the world's most powerful force for freedom should retreat into an isolationist foreign policy. But this afternoon I want to put to you that it is not Donald Trump in himself who is the problem. The problem is that people believe that he is the solution. This is not a phenomenon confined to the United States or to one end of the political spectrum. Exclusion, disillusionment, marginalisation are the maladies affecting every democracy. And they are ripe for exploitation by those who would advocate simple solutions to complex problems. We live in a time of insecurity and frustration. An age where working people feel that doors are being closed in their face. After years of playing by the rules, ordinary Australians and Americans feel that the deck is now stacked against them. That the future of work will be limited by the limits of automation and artificial intelligence. That much we we know for sure. But the future of wages and wages growth of the middle class of jobs that enable people to live lives full of quality and meaning is nowhere near as certain as it once was. The promise of both our nations has always been a pact between generations. Parents' DNA hardwired to gift a better standard of living to their children. Every wave of economic change has been driven by that dream, the breaking down of tariff walls, the joining of multilateral processes, and the embracing of new technologies. But for the first time in living memory, many of our fellow citizens believe that the prospect of passing on a better quality of life to the next generation cannot be assumed. In this more uncertain world, it is easy to appeal to a sense of nostalgia, to practice the politics of prejudice, to scapegoat a convenient minority. It is easy for fundamentalists, and the preachers of division, to build out, to hold out, the false promise of certainty and power to young people who feel marginalised in our society. It is why now more than ever we need to make the politics of inclusion, of bringing people together work in a way which is really required to make the politics of inclusion work in our economic policy and our foreign policy. Because inequality and alienation are not just domestic threats to our political stability. They're international threats to our regional and global security. At home and abroad, we cannot merely condemn extremism or repudiate it. We need to set the positive counterfactual We need to demonstrate the benefits of engagement are greater than the benefits of isolationism. That inclusion and respect deliver richer rewards than digging ideological trenches or building walls. We need to prove that our democratic and political institutions and our international trade and security frameworks are up to the task of keeping the peace and securing prosperity. Where extremists seek to exploit flaws, our task is to fix them. Where we need to adapt or improve or modernise our approach and structures, we must. There are undoubtedly things that we can learn from each other. For example, I think it is important and overdue and unarguable that Australia and its political leaders need to look at how the United States has handled the vexed issue of foreign donations. I firmly believe that the time has come for Australia to ban donations from overseas. On the broader question of foreign policy, the party I lead, the Australian Labor Party, has long held to a policy built upon three pillars. One, a strong alliance with the United States. two. Closer engagement with the United Nations and multilateral institutions. Three, a comprehensive relationship with the Indo-Pacific region. We recognise that the current rules-based system, the system the United States and other nations designed and led in the aftermath of the Second World War, has delivered seven decades without a mass global conflict. And we understand very clearly that Australia's strategic relationship and our close friendship with the United States is not just a benefit to us, but to to the wider region which we occupy. The Indo-Pacific is a more secure, more prosperous, and more stable place because of American engagement. That is why, for example, the previous Labor government in 2011 worked so hard to secure The force posture initiatives that not only provide an opportunity for both our nations to enhance our defence and security cooperation, but also to include our regional partners in these endeavours. Now these structures and conventions, this respect for a framework of rules, is essential to a satisfactory and long-term resolution of the situation in the South China Sea. Australia is in no way a disinterested observer in this matter. Both sides of politics are of one mind on this question. Like all nations, we have a right of passage through the oceans and the skies of the region in accordance with international law. As a great trading nation, Australia has a direct stake in the freedom of navigation and in upholding accepted behaviours around one third of the world's shipping transits in the South China Sea. That is $5.3 trillion in total trade passing through the area every year. It is in no one's best interests for the current climate of heightened tensions to continue. And it is vital that all claimant states seek to de-escalate tensions and work within the ASEAN Framework to finalise codes of conduct as soon as possible. Australia continues to urge all parties to abide by both the terms and the spirit of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. On the broader question of the future shape in our region, I've never brought into the idea of an inescapable binary choice between Australia's alliance with the United States on one hand and our deepening engagement with China on the other. I do not see diplomacy as a zero-sum gain. The massive commercial and economic interdependence between China and the United States and the deep diversified diplomatic, cultural and military links between the two countries are powerful, tangible arguments against any escalation intentions. That truth applies for Australia as well. The inescapable economic truth for a low population, fair wage nation like Australia is our future prosperity depends upon a close, constructive relationship with China. Today, around 500 million people are members of Asia's burgeoning middle class. In the next two decades, that figure will go to around 3 billion people. China will go from an economic superpower to a veritable force of economic nature. Its economy, the real incomes and the purchasing power of its people will continue to grow. Its one belt and one road economic policies will be influential from Central Asia to Europe. Of course, China is not the whole story for us in Asia, but Australia is incredibly fortunate to be part of the growth and rise of China in the 21st century. We need, in Australia, an intelligent, nuanced foreign policy approach with our whole region. Better ties with India, for example, the fastest growing major economy in the world a more active role in ASEAN, particularly as a partner with Indonesia, where nine million people are entering the middle class every year. And we need to ramp up our efforts in renewable energy, preparing for the $2.5 trillion of investment that will flow into the region in renewable energy by 2030. And while we seek to harness these opportunities, we must also meet our responsibilities including a renewed focus on our nearest neighbour, Papua New Guinea, and the island nations of the Pacific, particularly where it comes to tackling climate change. For proud nations like Kiribati and the Marshall Islands, climate change isn't an academic argument or a piece of political rhetoric. It's a living, immediate, existential threat. Rising sea levels, king tides. Storm surges are eating away at land, roads, and seawalls. Polluted water is seeping into village wells, and floodwaters are spreading disease. We cannot, in good conscience, ask these nations to bide their time and to retreat to non-existent higher ground while we bicker over our next move. We need to lead. The force of America's advocacy and its example has been a powerful lever for global action on climate change. In particular, I think of breakthrough moments in recent months where President Obama and President Xi formally joined the Paris Climate Agreement. The world's two biggest economies, its two largest polluters, coming together to commit to real action on hard deadlines. This is again proof that the world is a better place when cooperation between great powers is the order of the day. And if climate change and geopolitical security remain problems best solved by the nation-state forums and the frameworks of the 20th century, (coughs) we must also recognise that the new face of terrorism operates outside the established international order. Beyond the world of international law and traditional nation-state conflict, it's almost exactly 15 years ago When the streets of New York were filled with the smoke and the ash and the dust of the World Trade Center, when the Pentagon here in DC was attacked and United 93 crashed in that field in Pennsylvania, Australians watched on in horror. Even now, images from that day reach and send a chill into the hearts of all freedom-loving people. Those deeds of unspeakable evil redefined the way we saw the world, and they recast the face of terrorism. Fifteen years on, the threats in our world have evolved and metastasized yet again. Those elaborate, large-scale attacks carried out with almost military precision have given way to low-tech, opportunistic acts of violence, carried out by lone actors with little direction, using unsophisticated means. The footprint of these terrorists and their threat profile is much more difficult to detect. Because of social media and digital platforms, the propaganda arm of modern terrorism has a longer reach than ever before. And around our world, individuals are radicalising more quickly, often acting only under a vague sense of broad direction from extreme terrorist groups, rather than from specific instruction and operation and it's in circumstances such as these that the traditional threat indicators and the old mindset for identifying risk may not assist us. The perpetrators may not have a history of extreme political ideology or extreme radical pronouncements. There may only be very tenuous links between them and overseas organisations or no visible connection to broader movements at all there may not even be evidence of an individual acquiring the components needed for complex weapons. In an era when information is more fragmented and more obscure, we need stronger cooperation between our own domestic security agencies and our international partners. As democracies, as nations made great by migration, as leaders in the Indo-Pacific, the security threats that we face are common and our responsibility to counter them is shared. In cybersecurity. we need to cooperate much more closely to protect both sensitive government to government information and confidential industrial and commercial information. This is critical to our national security, to our economic competitiveness and indeed the protection of intellectual property. Cyber attacks have no respect for international borders and a parochial approach won't help us guard against them as allies. As partners in the international security community, we need a more coordinated effort to just stay ahead of the game, just as we must work together to deprive terrorist organisations of funds and resources. This requires modernising treaties, conventions and export controls, because in 2016, people can Google bomb making instructions and use 3D printing to make a gun. In our world, Terrorism can be downloaded at home, and weapons homemade. This is a particular concern as we face the next phase of our conflict with Daesh. Sydney Jones, one of the leading foreign policy thinkers in Jakarta, has said, the conflict in Syria has captured the imagination of Indonesian extremists in a way no foreign war has before. And as our troops in the Middle East begin to reclaim ground, and resources from terrorist forces, there is a particular risk of a demobilizing army returning to Asia armed with new combat skills and nursing old hatreds. Detaining, policing, and de-radicalizing these individuals will require leadership, in particular from the world's largest Muslim nation, Indonesia, and of course, leadership from the United States. Beyond a specific theatre of conflict, there is a bigger battlefield in the fight against terrorism and the pursuit of a more secure world. Combating extremism depends not just on strong law enforcement and rigorous security. It requires a cohesive, inclusive society. I reject utterly the dangerous false choice peddled by some around the world that you can have either Western liberal values respect difference, cherish peace, or be a Muslim. But you can't be both. Wherever we live, fanaticism is a weed that we have to pull out by the root, digging down into the social dislocation that draws people to hatred and violence. Our task is to show them there is no honour in crime, no glory in death, nothing to be gained by throwing your life away and taking innocent people with you. And that returns us to the challenge of inclusion, to proving that governments and politics and markets serve the interests of the whole community. Because if people feel that there is more to be gained from working inside the system, rather than railing against it outside, if our citizens believe that they have a shared stake in the future of the nation, that the political system can speak to the lives of everyday citizens, and that the person's democratic vote can actually have an impact on decisions which are made in our society. If they feel that there are rewards for hard work, to be won from hard work, that there are opportunities to be seized upon merit, that one's postcode does not define one's future, then this is the formula for a stronger and safer world. I think restoring faith in these old and tested principles requires new ideas and new energy. But if Australia, the home of the fair go, and America, the land of opportunity, can live up to our founding ideals, if we can prove worthy of the nation that we wish to see in the mirror, the nation, the country that we want our children to believe in, then securing the future is well within our grasp. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Thank you. That was terrific. Well, well, well worth um, a Friday afternoon. (laughs) And a message that, um, uh, throughout the speech, you said we, and um, you you, you were talking about we in many senses of the word. uh, The political elite, politicians, we the West, we the democracies. um, And it was a message that is uh, needed in this town, but in a lot of capitals around the world. So I appreciate that. Uh, I also was a bit disappointed you said you're going to outlaw or would like to have a law banning foreign contributions, because many of us are so despondent about our election, we were beginning to pick (laughs) candidates in Queensland and Victoria, and now now that that satisfaction will be denied to us as well. Um, Let me me ask you about one thing you didn't mention, and I was a bit surprised, and that was TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If TPP is important to Australia, This is the time and place to say so, because President Obama is making his big push to get it passed in the lame duck uh, right now as we speak. And I think most uh, observers in this town would say it's a long shot for the lame duck. Um, And then, you know, probably uh, a year or two before the next administration finds a way around it. So if if you could share your thoughts on TPP, what it means for Australia, uh, what America's choice means, um, uh, I think a lot of people here would appreciate it.
1: There's three points I want to make about TPP and and trade. Um, The first one is that for Australia we're a trading nation. So we need capital inflows into Australia, foreign direct investment. We're an immigrant nation. A a, a statistic or a number which I'm very proud of is that about 27 in every hundred Australians was born overseas. Which really, other than I think Luxembourg for tax reasons and uh, Israel for religious reasons. We are the most immigrant country in the world. Uh, So what that means of course is that trade's fundamental to Australia's future. Uh, Of course not every trade arrangement, every detail makes it a good agreement. But in my time of leading the opposition, uh, we have come to positions to support a Japan free trade agreement, uh, China free trade agreement, we put a couple of uh, amendments to it but they've worked through, Uh, Korean free trade agreement, uh, so there is, even though the government perhaps didn't sufficiently acknowledge our constructiveness, um, <laughs> uh, there is a degree of bipartisanship about the imports of having open borders. Uh, so that's the first point, we're a trading nation. And uh, the second point, though, is, of course, I think the TPP uh, is important for the region in that what it's doing is uh, lifting... Uh, nations around the region to uh, get the benefit of trade in particular with the United States and to some extent I think it's important for deeper American engagement in the region. Uh, I accept uh, one of the good arguments in support of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is that it increases the engagement of the United States in our region. Uh, I also accept that this agreement uh, has potential to be good for a range of nations, to uh, improve what they do in a range of issues which are important to labour people like myself. A better labour relations, more enforceable conditions, uh, a better approach on the environment. I think the third point I want, so I think the agreement has some uh, potential strengths, which are good for the region, not just individual nations, but the region as a whole. Uh, I think a multilateral agreement Uh, is to be encouraged, rather than just bilateral agreements. I think that lifts... I'm a fan, I said one of my propositions for our foreign policy is the more multilateral engagement we get, rather than just bilateral agreements, Mm. I think that deepens uh, uh, collective action and and reforms. The third point I want to make uh, is that the Australian Senate uh, is currently reviewing the TPP, We jealously guard our intellectual property. Uh, I get that the area of uh, uh, biologics is a sensitive area in the United States, but it's sensitive in Australia too. There is in Australia, I think, uh, some frustration over the actions of Philip Morris when they tried to undermine some of our uh, public health policies and they sought to use the ISDS clause to uh, undermine our public health policy. One of the features of the TPP is that specifically carves out from that being done in tobacco. So the Australian Parliament will analyse the agreement, but the general principle of trade, and the uh, there's several very strong arguments to put in favour of the TPP, mean that we must give it the most serious consideration in Australia. I am interested, of course, though, to see if uh, President Obama is rolling up his metaphorical sleeves in terms of uh, the lame duck period after the November election. Uh, But I also get that uh, this agreement's become quite a contested domestic political issue in the United States. I think it's fair to say, from the Australian opposition's view, we'll see what happens in the States. And then I think we'll take the next steps in Australia.
0: That's helpful. Thank you. And it's interesting. Um, uh, Japan is going to go ahead, I think. Um, and ratified um, in part to force our hand, um, and it's interesting to hear the thinking on labor uh, on this. Uh, the president is here with John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, is making a major push. Ohio is interesting. It's very, very politically important, and it's an agricultural exporting state and a state that's very dependent on trade, and yet it's also a state where um, the message of protectionism has resonance, so we'll, we'll see how that goes on our side. Um, I thought what you said about the China choice and is re- rejecting it was Im- important, frankly, for Americans to hear because um, some pretty prominent Australians, academics, former prime ministers have um, have signed on to this thesis, and, um, and it resonates. People hear this uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, a talisman-saber exercise might get page 24 in the Washington Post, but when a former prime minister um, or prominent academic poses this thesis that Australia will have to choose between the US and China. It gets a lot of play here. So your your statement on that was very important. I, I want to drill in a bit. Um, it, it, it's a bit unfair of me, but one other thing you didn't mention in your place was Japan. Um, and and it was you only had 25 minutes, so this is unfair of me. But I mention it because, um, yes, uh, uh, like the United States, you know, the, the, the Australia has deep economic interdependence and opportunity with China, but b- b- believes in the rules and the security that is represented by um, ANZUS. So it's not a binary choice, but but in the middle, in the middle there are choices. Um, the government has chosen uh, in Canberra and here and in Japan to do more trilateral exercises, more trilateral security cooperation. Some in Australia are uncomfortable with that, think it's too much that it might um, antagonize China. Um, so I would, I'd be interested in hearing a, a bit more of your views about how Australia with U.S. or Japan or other like-minded states should be shaping China's choices. Uh, I understand there's no, you reject the idea there's a choice between U.S. and China, but we have to all decide what we do now uh, because the South China Sea issue, for example, is not gonna be resolved in the next five or 10 years. It's gonna be a real test of wills. So, you know, how comfortable are you with the government's policy? Where would you like to see Australian strategy go in managing a much more assertive China than any of us expected?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I didn't refer to some specific Asian nations, but I made a point in my address to say that China's not Asia, that uh, there's lots of opportunities. I might have singled out Indonesia and uh, India, but could equally talk about improving our ties with Vietnam or uh, Japan. So I understand very clearly that Asia is much more than just China. But I've got to make this point. Australia's very lucky that we're on the uh, cusp of Asia. Once upon a time, when we had a colonial cringe, Asia was the place that people would fly over to go to Europe. Uh, no longer. Uh, as someone quite smart said to me, China is like a giant pulling machine and it's just going to keep going. You know, I'm quite bullish about uh, Chinese economic growth. Uh, I know they've moved from, uh, to a more domestic consumption phase in their policies, but it's still gigantic. When you look at China, uh, they have roughly four times the population of the United States. Approximately, you know, income levels in China might be 20% of what they are in the United States. But if, I'm not saying China will go to income levels that you get in the United States, but if they were to go to 50% of the United States, that's a population of four times the United States at an income of 50% of the United States, that's double that of the United States. That's why I said in my speech, China's no longer going to be just an economic superpower, it's it, it's, it's, its own category. So as they, to borrow again from an expression that uh, was used in Australia, you, you only get one China in your lifetime, so you know, we need to engage with it properly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that therefore you have to uh, agree with their pronouncements about the nine-dash the nine line in the South China right. Sea. Or that we're not allowed to train with whoever we think we should train with. Uh, or that we shouldn't have a, a force posture initiative in Darwin with a marine force. So I, again, it's a matter of being clear. I think, what, uh, uh, I think in our dealings with China, what we can't afford to do is to be inconsistent or to encourage a loss of face or sort to of spring surprises. I think in life, the clearer you are about what you stand for, that doesn't mean that everyone has to agree with you or you have to agree with everyone else, but I think clarity and a lack of a surprise factor. You know, we had uh, decisions about whether or not a state-owned enterprise could bid for uh, some electricity infrastructure in New South Wales. I support the decision of the government to uh, not to have that bidder in the process, but I think if we knew, you know, we know what this infrastructure is, And we know that there were bidders interested. I think it probably would have been convenient to let people know a bit earlier, what's not for sale? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just use that as an illustration. I agree with what the government decided, but I'm not convinced that uh, springing surprises or embarrassing bidders, I don't think that's sensible either, is it? So Mm -hmm. I think it's a matter of being clear and consistent. And I think for better or for worse, the debate about the South China Sea has forced the foreign policy people in both sides of the mainstream of Australian politics to nail down our view about Mm. support for international rule of law uh, and support for resolution of these matters peacefully. Um, Terrific. Thank you. Let me open it up.
0: Uh, We have microphones. Um, Stanley, uh, maybe briefly introduce yourself and... Stanley Roth,
1: unaffiliated. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Government and outside, that Australia hasn't engaged visibly with the United States in freedom of navigation exercises by a time when China clearly is not decreasing tensions but increasing them both in South China Sea and, for that matter, East China Sea. What is your position, the party's position about such exercises? I certainly believe in uh, freedom of navigation, and I believe that our uh, warships or aeroplanes should. Uh, have that capacity. But whether or not we tack an Australian warship at the end of an American convoy, I'm not convinced that's necessary. Uh, Again, it's just to reprise something I said earlier. I don't think China can say who our military can train with, but nor do I necessarily think that uh, we have to tack one of our ships on the end of uh, one of your ships. Uh, I think you'll find that our Australian military are uh, conscientious in terms of their exercises, and engagement. Uh, I don't think it's right for the politicians to say when we should send a ship to where. What our Australian Defence Forces need to know though is that we do support freedom of navigation exercises. I'm more than confident from the information I get in our briefings with our Defence Forces that our um, Air Force and Navy are uh, diligent in terms of uh, exercising our international prerogatives. I don't think we necessarily need to put an Australian ensign behind an American ensign in a convoy, though. I think you're doing a fine job, and we're doing a fine job as it is.
0: Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Mindy Reiser. I'm a sociologist. I just came back from monitoring the elections in Belarus. So I would like to turn to Russia and Australia's views of Russia's recent doings. I think you've probably followed some of the events in the United States vis-a-vis what Russia's been up to. How do you feel about sanctions? Um, The Duma has passed some legislation which is extremely constraining of civic space. And I wonder what you feel Australia can do in the light of increasing pressure that is being exerted by Putin and his allies.
1: I think uh, a test of uh, our relationships with Russia will come as the Dutch-led Australian support investigations into those who are responsible for the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner over uh, the contested areas of eastern Ukraine. Uh, I know that the Dutch investigative authorities have been very diligent, incredibly professional I know they've been very ably supported by our own federal police and others. I think that the next... I mean, Russia's a long way away from Australia, but as we found out with that tragic uh, event, uh, the world's a much smaller place than Australians care to be believed, and that reminded us of it. How I think the detail of that report and what responsibility it attributes is going to be probably the next big Flashpoint for us. Uh, our focus is Asia, but and of course the Middle East. If that report says that you know X, Y, and Z are responsible, and if that report then says that uh, there was support coming from Russia in a sort of a demonstrable and provable manner, I think that's uh, going to be very challenging. Uh, I suspect that. You know, many of you are probably much more expert about what's happening in Russia than I would claim to be. I know that Putin sort of has a view of borders of Russia a bit like Catherine the Great and Potemkin, you know, and uh, I get that he has... He appeals... He's very popular. Uh, But notwithstanding that, I think it's very important that this report, when it's released, uh, that all of those who are involved need to... uh, demonstrate their bona fides in the way they respond to it. So for me, without getting into, you know, what's going to happen in the Baltics, NATO, pre-positioning, power contracts, energy supplies, uh, ceasefires, uh, the level of transparency and governance in in Ukraine, as an Australian, I think the next time Mr Putin and Russia are really going to get on our radar will be the release of this report and what that says and who that blames and what that reveals.
0: Let me, um, we we have to, uh, yeah, go ahead, please, right over here. This side of the room is (laughs) Uh, gun-shy. Thank you, uh, George Dragnic, a retired American diplomat, and a dozen years ago I helped negotiate the Free Trade Agreement with Australia, a bilateral agreement, so I appreciate your remarks about multilateralism. To go back to the TPP, uh, sir, you are a former trade union leader, Australian Workers Union, and you would know that the real opposition in this country comes from the AFL-CIO. You're in a position, I would think, to be able to articulate a position from a labor union point of view. How would you tell the AFL-CIO that their opposition is misguided?
1: Well, I wouldn't claim to know what the (coughs) AFL-CIO know. know, Or um, or the CIA. Well we read what they think anyway. <laughs> I did get to find out what they think about me through WikiLeaks. Um, <laughs> uh, let's be clear, I'm not a... I believe in the benefits of trade and open borders, but that doesn't make me a zealot in saying that every uh, development brought on by trade agreements is automatically good. Again, I've only observed at a distance the impact of uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. but. Um, a lot of manufacturing jobs seem to go south of the border after that agreement. So, you know, I have fraternal ties in the past with the United Steelworkers, and I saw they explained to me that they lost a lot of jobs. This idea that somehow it's okay to have some winners and some losers in trade agreements is not one I find satisfactory. It's a sort of uh, it's a proposition that a rising tide can only lift yachts. I think a rising tide should lift all boats. So I think it is incumbent upon the proponents of trade agreements to explain to people where they fit in. A trade agreement which sees people accelerate losing their jobs is not for me uh, necessarily the purpose of government. It's not the role of any government to negotiate away people's jobs. Now again that's not an argument against trade and I understand and uh, had a very good chat with the deputy trade representative today and his team that uh, this is a pretty progressive trade agreement, the TPP, that there are enforceable protections for labour standards, and I'm going to look very carefully at that, and enforceable protections in terms of the environment, and this was a step forward. I was in Montreal yesterday, where I listened to the uh, Trudeau Minister talk about uh, the benefits of a Canadian European Union trade agreement, and there was a series of social democratic leaders in Europe talking about how that may work in the interests. So, I'm up for explaining the benefits of trade agreements, But I also have an obligation, I have to say, to represent people who don't always have voices in these trade negotiations. If you're a manufacturing worker in your early 50s uh, and accelerating the disappearance of your job, I'm not sure that's an easy thing just to say, well, you can retrain or reskill. So I think there's a challenge here about making economic change work for all people. And whilst this isn't quite the question you asked, it's in the great tradition of politicians to answer the question they want to give. Um,
0: well, like the Australian auto industry, I mean, the Lib Naps have basically uh, eviscerated the Australian. Yeah,
1: we weren't happy about that. <laughs> I mean, seriously, uh, I get that uh, there were arguments, and our current ambassador, of course, was a previous life, was a distinguished treasurer of the government. Uh, but, and you know, I remember se- for the for the relatively small tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, we now see in October of this year the last cars rolling off production lines in Elizabeth, in Broadmeadows, in Geelong. Uh, we will see thousands of people lose their jobs. Um, yet at the same time, in our country, we provide tax concessions so you can speculate in property investment. You know, like, it's a matter of priority, isn't it? So I think one of the challenges for economic growth in the future to make it sustainable is to have inclusive growth. It's not enough simply to say, grow the economy and then we'll share the proceeds. I think we have to understand that where you've got uh, greater mechanisms for inclusion, you will actually have more sustainable economic growth. I use the illustration of the equal treatment of women in the workplace. Where we treat women equally, where we pay women the same, uh, where we provide them equal opportunity to be leaders, on boards, or indeed uh, elsewhere, where we provide properly funded universal childcare. That will make it easier for women to participate. I listened to Seal uh, uh, Richards uh, from Planned Parenthood speak the, uh, yesterday, and she made this very good point. She said, uh, we've never seen a nation in the world which has genuine gender equity, so we don't know quite how well we can do if we actually had genuine uh, equity and equality. So. I get the point about trade. I'm prepared to have the arguments and the discussions. My track record is to support trade agreements in Australia. But in terms of the advice I give the AFL-CIO, they're there to represent their members. They're there to make sure that um, there's a place for their members in the process of change. And it is not the case that every trade agreement or every deregulation and, and reduction of support for industries has had a positive impact on the lives of ordinary people. I mean, look at the debate about the steel industry. Um, It's just complex. I'm wary of people with textbook solutions for real-life problems. Can I ask a question about
0: Australian politics? Um, You know, pivoting off of your question. You know, people used to joke that Italy and Japan would have a new prime minister every year. Um, but the fact is, Prime Minister Abe in Japan has now had four Australian Prime Ministers. Oh. This, is, this is not a prognostication about the strength of the current government, but, but just looking at the past… I don't
1: mind if you do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I'll let you do that if you want, but looking at the past decade, there's been an enormous volatility in Australian politics um w- w- Would you attribute that to the factors you were just talking about? Is it something about the nature of political parties in australia um, w- w- Why so volatile? I mean, uh, how do you explain that
1: I'm conscious that I've got a number of uh, my fellow political participants from previous years here, so you know they're equally capable of giving answers to this but I think the media play a role uh I think. Opinion polls play a role. I think um, being a government who's got a plan when you get elected plays a role, good preparation. One thing I don't do is I don't blame the voters. (laughs) Um, I think it would be good for Australia to have longer periods of stability. But on the other hand, um, if Australians want to change governments, if political parties in our Westminster system change their leaders, I think whilst that could be, I think what that does do is it really annoys the voters. I think one thing Labor has learned is that the voters want the right to change governments, not the members of that political party. Uh, Labor has learned that lesson. We've changed our rules and the way we pick our leaders, so you just can't simply do some of the things which happened. Uh, I think sooner or later the Liberal Party in Australia is going to have to change its rules by the way it picks its leaders because otherwise I suspect you will still see more instability carrying on in the Liberal Party. Uh, I think though in terms of policy certainty, there is a consensus between the major parties about the US alliance uh, on dealing with national security. I think on some of the domestic issues, there's been a fracturing of that consensus. But I also think volatility is manifested by the fact that in Australia, um, 30% of the voters picked someone other than the major political parties at the last election. Uh, So I think what my party can do is we've changed the way we pick our leaders, so it's a lot harder to do what we saw. But I think in terms of volatility and dissatisfaction, it goes back to what I was saying a bit earlier. If you propose economic growth that leaves some people behind and only includes some people, you are going to get volatility. I think if you want to have longer-term stability, for me the issue isn't even... The manifestation of maybe changing leaders, but I think the deeper problem is that for a lot of Australians, they think that decisions are made by vested interests. They think decisions are made out of the control of their democratic, the exercise of their democratic vote. So I think my challenge as leader of the Labor Party is to restore people's faith in the authenticity of what we talk about and that what we talk about has to people have to feel that their vote can make an impact upon what happens.
0: I suspect a big part of it also is the social welfare state, although all of us have different versions of it, is reaching diminishing returns with globalization and aging societies. In this country, some people say that um, the Democratic Party is dying of old age. Um, It's not coming up with new ideas and the Republican Party, which has some reform ideas, is committing suicide. (laughs) Um, So it's not just Australia political parties everywhere born out of the Westphalian or Republican, uh, small r, uh, tradition are all struggling and it's always fascinating, I think, for Americans and Australians, Americans and Canadians to compare these. We learn a lot from each other and we've learned a lot from you today. This has been really very well, interesting. I, th- I and, think there's
1: more in common in our political debates yeah. than we realise. Um, yes, we have compulsory voting. Uh, you don't. Uh, you know, there are plenty of differences. You've got the primary system and you've got a year-long campaign of destruction of candidates. Um, LAUGHTER Maybe that's not so different in Australia either, but but some of the trends are not dissimilar: ageing societies, yeah. um, the rise of Asia, uh, the the incredible disruptive effect of the internet. Uh, basically, in the next ten years, any job which can be automated will be automated. Uh, I'd argue that dealing with climate change is a global issue. You've got people who are left behind by change. You've uh, There's a lot of similarities. I was struck yesterday talking to European leaders and the Canadians and Prime Minister Trudeau, that whilst we have some different factors, there is a lot more in common going on across the developed nations in how we deal with jobless growth. How do we get the idea that our kids, as they grow up, will be able to afford a home? How do you make sure that people can either get a university or a technical-based education? There's a lot going on which is far more similar than I realised.
0: Yeah. Well, we're in it together. Um, and your remarks today really really show that. So uh, you have a busy schedule, a short trip, but it's really uh, terrific for all of us and the many people, I think, watching online that you took an hour out of your day to, to join us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Much.